You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Everybody's all right? <laughs> Not for long. I'm about to talk about something. <laughs> I'm about to talk about something. It's a, uh, uh, yeah, you know what we're going to get into today? Happy Father's Day. We're going to get into abortion today, early termination pregnancy. That's what we're going to get into today on Father's Day. Uh, listen, caveats before I start. And if we could turn my mic down just the slightest bit. Caveats before I start. Number one, this is a really sensitive topic. Terribly sensitive. If it's your first time here, I apologize. Literally, I apologize. I'm sorry that we're doing such a sensitive topic for the first time. Uh, and so if, that, if you need to leave for any reason, if you need to talk to somebody, we have Mac right out back here. She's willing to talk to you. Where's Phil? Phil is right over here as well. Don't let Phil fool you with his long hippiness and his hair. He's actually part of our leadership team, one of our elders, and an incredible person to talk to. So... <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and I just want to know that you just, just know that this is a safe space for you. Okay, it's a safe space. So if this is uncomfortable in any way, don't sweat it. I'm okay with you leaving. All right. Second caveat: I'm a white cishet man. <laughs> I don't have full business talking about this, right? And so because I don't have the experience of others who can bear children, let this be the beginning of a conversation rather than the end of the conversation. The last thing we need is another white, straight, cishet man telling us what to do with our bodies, right? So, so this is the beginning of the conversation. You're allowed to disagree. You know, unity in Jesus Christ, not uniformity. Okay, so if you disagree, feel free to disagree. It's really okay, okay? I, I'm okay with all of that. All right, caveats out of the way. Ready? Here we go. All right, this is old information, but I have a question for you. What is the busiest traffic day of the year in America? Somebody tell me. No. What? Mother's Day. Y'all know that Mother's Day is the busiest traffic day of the year in America? Hmm. Hmm. Right? Father's Day is today, and I'm a father. You know what I'm going to do today? I'm probably just going to sit on the couch, which is no different than the other day. Like, truly, maybe I'll have a special drink, like a mezcal or something. Anybody like mezcal? Yeah. But otherwise, I'm not doing much of anything. Mother's Day, we shut down the highways. You know why? Because ultimately, we understand that at its core, this is a matriarchal society. We recognize, I think, where power lies. And yet, what I would say we do is I would say for our entire American history, we have worked really, really hard to subjugate women, to subjugate mothers, to subjugate those who are able to have children. We've done a really great job of being power over an entire group of people. And I think in our churches, we have done an incredibly good job subjugating women, deciding, uh, telling women and others who can have children what they can do with their bodies, and creating a power over structure in the church. We have done that. And so because that's the case, I absolutely need to talk about, um, uh, when we talk about you know, sex positivity uh, and we talk about purity culture, we have to talk about some of the laws we've created around purity culture and around the Christian subjugation of women and those who can have children. Because we've done that. Okay? We, we have to acknowledge it. And so in acknowledging it, I want to say that like last week, Sarah New talked about how we have to think about sex work differently. right? How many people heard that? We're here for that. Yeah, that was really, that was excellent. Uh, I'm going to talk about why we need to think about early termination pregnancy a little differently, okay? All right. A couple of months ago, 
we posted on our website, uh, we said, hey, there's another way to think about early termination pregnancy, another way to think about abortion. And we got by far the most comments and the most, uh, you know, engagement that we've ever had as a church. And, and this is what most of the comments were like. About three-quarters of the comments went something like this. You can't ignore the Bible, you deluded murderers. Or how deceptive that this church doesn't read their Bibles. Y'all are wolves in sheep's clothing. You are deceived. Try reading Psalm 139 and Jeremiah 1. The Holy Spirit is going to serve you up a big fat L on a platter. And that last one, I didn't really know what they meant. Like sometimes people call a blunt an L. And so I just kept thinking of the Holy Spirit serving up a blunt on a platter. <laughs> and I was like, that's kind of, that's interesting. You know, like, like um, but I'm pretty sure they mean a loss. Um, because a lot of these folks thought that our church, we don't read the Bible at our church. Um, and so I said, okay, maybe we should read the Bible because they're all, you know, telling us that we should do something. So let's, let's read the Bible. What does the Bible say when, we talk about, uh, when we're talking about abortion? What does Scripture say? Well, let's read Psalm 139. Let's read Jeremiah 1. They go like this. This is Jeremiah 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Okay. And then Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. Now, these are beautiful passages. They're wonderful. These are great prayers. I love these passages. They're like passages of great comfort. Who is feeling a little anxiety? Just me. I love these passages because when I'm feeling a little bit of anxiety... Like, they're comforting, right? So Jeremiah, what's happening is he's about to tell all of Israel that they're about to be captured by the Babylonians, and God is basically giving him a pep talk on, you got this. I've known you from the beginning. This is what you are made to do. Okay, this is not Jeremiah going, all right, I'm about to tell the, the, you know, all of Israel that they're going to be held captive. And by the way, God, early termination pregnancy, your thoughts? Like, that's not happening here, Okay. <laughs> Same with David. David is being chased by King Saul. He's hiding out in caves. He's praying to God and writing these prayers down. And while he's being chased by Saul, fearing for his life and hiding in caves, he's not going, hey, God, by the way, quick question. Early termination pregnancy. What do you think people 2,000 years from now should think about it? Right? That's not happening. Okay? We, we get that. And yet, what we've decided to do is we've decided to read our scriptures in such a way where we take everything literally, right? And all of a sudden, it's a constitution. And what do we say at forefront? We take scripture so seriously that we can't always take it literally. Thank you. We can't always take it literally. Because if we're going to take that literally, here's what else we have to do. we got to take all of the scripture literally. And when we do that, frankly speaking, oh boy, scripture's unpleasant, Truly unpleasant. Like, what I'm about to read to you is unpleasant. So another content warning. This comes from the Torah. Now, the Torah was the law, right? The Torah was the thing you should take literally if you are a follower of God, okay? People knew that the prayers of people like Jeremiah and David were one thing, but this was the law, the thing you should take literally. So what does God say in terms of early termination? God says, but if you have gone astray while married to your husband and you have made yourself impure by having sexual relations with a man other than your husband, here the priest is to put the woman under a curse. May the Lord cause you to become a curse among your people when he makes your womb miscarry and your abdomen swell. May the water that brings a curse into your body so that your abdomen swells and your womb miscarries. And then the woman is to say, amen, so be it. Wow, this has come straight from our scriptures. This is pretty awful. 
Because what's going on? What's going on is God says, if, you, uh, if, if a woman has an affair, then we should pray that this pregnancy end, ends early. Like, right? That's what God's kind of commanding here. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, it says similar things, except when two men are fighting... If two men are fighting and you happen to uh, um, uh, hit a pregnant woman and this pregnant woman, uh, you know, her pregnancy ends, well, then it's up to the husband to decide whether or not there should be any restitution because, frankly speaking, and most theologians agree, that that child is not a child yet. Okay? So in our law, the law of our scripture, we have a God who, when it comes down to it, whether we like it or not, and I have a ton of trouble with this, a ton of trouble, whether we like it or not, is commanding early termination in some regards and in some respect. All right, that's an issue, okay? Again, if we're reading Scripture literally, we need to read all of Scripture literally, and this becomes a problem, okay? So, if that's where God is in the law, how do we get here? How do we get to where uh, being, quote-unquote, pro-life is synonymous with being a Christian? How do we get to a place where, where, you know, you all maybe have been told, like, hey, if you do this, you know, if you are a person of loose morals, you're going to be in really bad shape, and this is going to happen to you, and, you know, you should feel for your soul, you know, fear for your soul after this. Where do we, how do we get there? My youth leader growing up said there's one unforgivable sin, and it's abortion, and if you have one or if you ate and abet one, you're going to hell. Legitimately said that to us. Why? How do we get to that place? And even the comments we got when we posted, they're really awful, Really awful, like from so-called Christians. I'm going to tell you how we got there. And I'm going to give you like a, a, maybe like a five-minute history lesson. Can I do that? Yes. You all okay with that? Yes. So now I'm, I'm deviating from scripture and I'm going into a history lesson. And we're going to take a hard right turn, okay? Okay. All right, let's do it. It's, this is a, y'all, this is a hard message to write. I'm just doing what I can here. Anyway, so let's, let's do the history lesson. And here's how the history lesson goes. Raise your hand if you know about the Southern Baptist denomination. Okay, arguably the Southern Baptist denomination, uh, they are, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the parents of evangelicalism. Like, like, we are an evangelical church in our methodology, kind of in the way we operate, right? And they would be like sort of the, the ones that have set that in motion. Did you know, are you ready? Did you know that in 1968, 1971, and 1976, the Southern Baptist denomination came out with Official resolutions declaring that pro-choice was their stance for women. How many people knew that? Okay, two of you. Yeah, 45 years ago, the evangelical church at its core was pro-choice. Interesting, right? And in fact, Roe v. Wade happens in 1973, and so the, the Baptist press puts out a, 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 puts out a statement, and they say, religious liberty, human equality, and justice are advanced by the Supreme Court abortion decision. This is after Roe v. v. Wade. The president of the Southern Baptist Convention says, I've always, felt it was, I've always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. And it's always therefore seemed to me that what's best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. Y'all know that 45 years ago, this was the stance of the evangelical church for the most part? No, okay. So what happened? What changed? There's a really conservative guy named Paul Weirich. He realized some changes need to be made. Why did he realize some changes need to be made? I'll tell you why. You ready for another sharp right turn? Segregation. <laughs> Y'all didn't think we were going to talk about segregation, did you? Not today. Not with this. But what happened was in 1954, Brown versus Board of Ed. Y'all remember learning about this? Said schools had to be desegregated, except if you were a Christian school. 
If you were a Christian school, you did not have to desegregate. And so all the racist parents said, great, we're going to put our kids in Christian school. Okay? All the racist parents put their kids into Christian schools up until the 1970s when Richard Nixon comes along and he says, hey, Christian schools, you can't segregate anymore. If you continue to segregate, you're going to lose your tax-exempt status. And all those Christian schools were like, hey, we have a lot of power and influence with the racists, and we want to keep that power and influence with the racists, and, and, and you're making us lose that. right?" And so they lost that. This guy, Paul Weirich, goes, well, we need to have power and influence somehow. How are we going to have it? Like, we got to do this. And so first he says, hey, maybe we should all get behind porn, right? And then he finds out evangelical Christians love porn. <laughs> so it didn't quite work out the way he thought. And he says, hey, um, maybe we should make it about prayer in schools. But you all know, as long as there are tests, there's going to be prayer in schools. But um, shh. Right? And so he goes, that's not going to work either. We're not going to galvanize or get enough people excited. And so all of a sudden, Paul Weirich meets this group of Catholics, because Catholics have always been anti-abortion. He meets a group of Catholics, and the Catholics say, hey, you really want to make a statement? Do this. Be, quote, unquote, pro-life. Be it, okay? And if you do that, you're going to not only galvanize a group of people, but you're going to be able to have the political power you lost when you couldn't segregate any longer, Okay? And so Paul Weirich goes, this is great news. It's great news because, A, this is the easiest thing in the world for old white male pastors. You don't have to talk to a fetus. You don't have to interact with a fetus. You don't have to solve problems with a fetus. You don't have to take care of the fetus after it's born, right? We see that happening all the time. The only thing I have to do is subjugate women. Perfect. I do that already, right? <laughs> like, that's what ends up happening, and so they go, well, let's rally around this pro-life stance. So they rally around the pro-life stance. Movies come out. All of a sudden, there's the uh, theology papers that are written around Psalm 139 and Jeremiah 1, saying this is what God really thinks about early termination pregnancy. Y'all should know this. And next thing you know, we have something called the moral majority. Y'all hear of the moral majority before? Yeah, and now we have more power and more influence than segregation ever gave us. <laughs> This is part of our history, part of our lineage as a church that's evangelical. So we have to come to terms with this, right? Something that we have to do. Why is it then that abortion is synonymous with being a Christian? Well, pro, being pro-life is synonymous with being a Christian. I want to read this. We care about it because 45 years ago, a bunch of old white pastors feared losing their power and created a cause which now allowed them to power over women, sex, and left-wing politicians. Bottom line. Am I oversimplifying this? Yeah, y'all, because this is a 29-minute sermon, and i got to keep it that short. But I am going to drop the links so that you all can see all the sources where I'm getting this from so that you know I'm not making this stuff up, okay? All right, so the links will all be there if you all need them. Okay, so where does that leave us as a church? Where does that leave us? We say we're ushering in the next 500 years. We, we're saying that we are for the flourishing of humanity, for the inclusiveness of affirmation of humanity. So in terms of, of our stance on abortion, in terms of our stance on early termination pregnancy, what is it? I want to read it again to make sure I don't mess it up. At forefront, I say that if we're truly ushering in the next 500 years, if we're truly living in a Christ-like way, then in no way should we be policing anyone's bodies, especially not our sisters or others who can have children. On the contrary, we should be actively pursuing liberation for our sisters and those who can have children. At Forefront, it's our job to make sure that we are a safe space for all of our sisters and those who can have children to navigate the complex care of each and every body. That is our job as a church at Forefront. By definition, we are pro-choice, by definition, 
Okay, which means if you are completely anti-abortion, we want to be the church that supports you emotionally as you go through that process. If there's a different choice you want to make, we want to be a church that is there in the name of Jesus Christ who supports you through your process. We are pro-choice. Now, you ready for this? We're also incredibly pro-life. Okay, we're also incredibly pro-life. Now, you're, you're sitting there going like, Jonathan, you're cheating. You got to make a stance one way or the other. Nope. Like, what do we ever do binaries at this church, y'all? Come on, right? So I'm going to talk to you about why it is we are both pro-choice and pro-life. And in order to do that, we're going to go back to our scriptures, and we're going to go back to context, right? Like I said earlier, we want to make sure we're not taking the Bible literally. So let's go back. And y'all got your WWJD bracelets? Put them on, please. Put them on, because we're going to talk about what Jesus would do. Y'all ready? All right, I'm taking another turn. Are y'all following okay? Is everybody following with me? Just want to make sure. I feel like this one's going all over the place. All right, so let's read some scripture. Let's read about Jesus. It says this. So Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. And now he had to go through Samaria, and he came to the town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was noon. And when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? We're going to talk about the woman at the well. Yay. Yeah, thank you. I love the excitement. <laughs> Haven't heard that much excitement for the woman at the well in a while. Y'all know about the woman at the well? Okay, all right. Well, uh, real quick, when you're reading scripture and you see things that say like Jacob's well or Jacob to his son Joseph and you see these little things, those are little clues that we should pay attention. Okay, if you're like, how do I read scripture in context? Pay attention to those little clues, then go Google it. Why would that be said? Okay, because that's important. And so um, the woman says to Jesus, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as also did his sons and livestock? Okay, so now this Jacob's well thing keeps going on. What's up here? What's happening? Well, this well is actually a symbol of promise. And it's a symbol that, that, that everyone would be united and one with God. That's what it was a symbol of. That was the promise that was made. Through history, what ended up happening were Jewish people were separated from the Samaritans. Remember back to Jeremiah, who has to talk about enslavement, right? It actually comes from that. That, that was a big deal, okay? And so now, Samaritans are called dogs, they're treated as second-class citizens. There are laws against Samaritans conversing with the Jewish folk. You ever want to know why this woman had to come at noon to a well in the middle of the Middle East? Because there are laws that said she couldn't converse with other folks. So she has to go to the well then. All right, this woman is not only a second-class citizen, but this woman is being subjugated because of who she is, how she was born, because of what her body looks like. Does that sound familiar to any of us? Okay. That's what's going on here. And so she says to Jesus, and I have to imagine she is tired and doesn't want to put up with the BS anymore. So she goes, do you know that we are part of Jacob's promise? You know that, that even though your, your people call me mongrels and I'm here at noon and all the rest, you know we're one and the same, right? You know that I'm not less than you because I'm sick of this. I'm sick of being subjugated. And what does Jesus say to that? 
Jesus says, hey, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will, be, uh, will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said or what you have just said is quite true. Now, here's where we get stuck. Raise your hand if you grew up listening to this story. Okay, most of you. Okay, we get stuck on, quote, unquote, the loose morals of this woman. Right? That's where we get stuck. This woman, was, she was of loose morals. Five husbands. Probably spends a lot of time in Reno. That's my first thought. <laughs> right? Sorry if you're from Reno. Anyway, anyway, like, but, again, context matters here. Why would this woman have five husbands. Why? Well, again, we've got to go back to the law. We've got to go back to the Torah. And the Torah says that if there is any reason, any reason whatsoever that a woman wants to, or a man wants to divorce her, her uh, wife, he can. Any reason. She, she puts on her socks weirdly. Anything, right? The wife has no say in that. The wife has to accept the certificate of divorce and move on. So most likely, it's possible that this woman, through no choice of her own, has had husbands who have divorced her and given her that certificate, whether she likes it or not. Again, a law that subjugates women. Now, not only that, but as Sarah preached on last week, if you were here, if you, if you have a husband who dies, you are required to marry the husband's brother. So you've got to marry your brother-in-law, right? How many people are like, yes. <laughs> you've got to marry your brother-in-law. So it's very possible that she's had a husband who has died and has had to marry her brother-in-law. Again, no choice of her own. This is not her choice, whether or not she can have this many husbands or not. Now, here's the thing. If a husband dies and there's no certificate of divorce, at that time, because women were so subjugated by the law, power over was such a big deal, and they were considered second-class citizens, especially if you were a Samaritan, then it's probably likely that at some point she had nothing left to do but beg, right? That's what she could do as a woman in those times, which means that the man she's with who is not her husband is probably a really good human being who takes her in because she doesn't have any other options. Okay, we're getting all this. So when Jesus is talking, saying, hey, you, you have five husbands, I know your story, it's not because she's a woman of loose morals who needs to repent and join purity culture. It's because Jesus is saying, I know you've been subjugated by thousand-year-old laws that take away your humanity. Do we hear that a little differently? Do we see that? I like what John Shelby Spong says about this. He says, Samaria was to be a part of a new Israel. No one was excluded. There was a new and different understanding of what it means to be human. And that was what Jesus came to reveal. This story is not about sexual immorality. It's about faithfulness to God who draws us beyond human barriers, human divides, and human prejudices. And if that's the case, then it's time for our church to do the same. If we're going to be sex positive, then we organize around the end of jumping to a conclusion that morality is at the center of every one of these stories and instead get rid of unjust laws that unjustly are power, uh, keep people out of power. You feel that? So that's what it means to be pro-life. Now, when we talk about early termination pregnancy, who is it that is disproportionately affected? People that we could say are like the women at the well. People who have been considered second-class citizens through no, fault, through no fault of their own. And if we're going to be a church ushering in the next 500 years, then that's the thing we should address. That's what makes us pro-life. People who are uh, you know, socioeconomically disadvantaged. We know that abortion 
proportionally affects those folks more so than it does folks who have wealth. People of color are affected more so than folks who are not, right? These are things we know, and if we're going to talk about who that woman at the well is, it's not a person of loose morals, it's a person who has been subjugated, marginalized, oppressed, and that has got to end. And if we're truly going to be pro-life, and I want to read this again because it's this important, we have the ability to be a pro-life follower of Jesus Christ by voting for sexual education, free or reduced contraception, and access to health care for all people. And if we want to be pro-life followers of Jesus, then let's talk about the fact that 60% of our chronically undernourished population are women and children. And if you want to be pro-life follower of Jesus, then address inadequate care at the borders, which has resulted in the deaths of children. And if we want to be pro-life followers of Jesus, then let's advocate for free child care and continue care for foster children. And yes, we can even put adoption in that category, right? We can do that. That is true. If we're a pro-life follower of Jesus, then our ministry is working to abolish unjust laws so that all are brought into whole, and unto whole and full humanity because that is the promise of Jesus Christ. And that is why we are here to worship today. And so on this Father's Day, our job is to make sure we lift up women and those who can have children so that it equates with the traffic on Mother's Day. <laughs> right? Let's lift it up to that point. Men, on this Father's Day, that is our job, to be accomplices to women, to make sure that we're standing by our women, and to make sure that our women and those who can have children, that they are no longer subjugated to unjust, unfair laws that stop them from reaching the full humanity that God intends. And I'm going to say this last part. We come from the same promise of Jesus Christ. We proactively work to lift up women and those who can have kids just like Jesus. And the truth is that we are all family and we all belong. And to all of my sisters here today and to all my sisters who are listening, I'm thankful for your voice and your courage. And on this Father's Day, it is my honor to work towards your equity and restoration. And to that I say amen. amen. Will you all pray with me? God, uh, thanks for giving us Thanks for sending the Spirit in the midst of hard things. Thanks for giving us your promise in the midst of hard things. Thanks for giving us Jesus Christ in the midst of hard things. And God, we thank you for your unending, always abounding love for every single one of us, full stop. And God, when we forget that, we thank you for your grace, but convict us and remind us that it is our job to bring heaven here to earth, that we would start doing that right now, today, for all. We pray this in your name. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.